Well, today starts our uh, winter sermon series here at Hope Whangarei. The series is called Her Story, Her Voice, Women in the Bible, looking at the lives and faith journeys of women in the biblical narratives. And there's a tradition of doing character studies and sermons, looking at this biblical character or that person in the scriptures as a way of encouraging and inspiring our own life of faith. And over the next three months, we are going to be looking at women in the New and Old Testament and allowing their stories, their journeys, their lives, their experience of God and their voices to speak to us. And as well as our normal preaching team, I've invited our women lay preachers to share those women's stories with us, to give them voice. And my hope and my prayer for this series is that the Spirit may speak anew and afresh to us through the lives and faith of these women. In the biblical narrative, they're often overlooked and not heard, but who are an intricate part of God's story and ours. And my contribution to this series is going to be looking at women in leadership in the New Testament, looking at the silent witnesses to women in leadership within the early church in Paul's epistles, and that's what we're going to be doing today, and then wrestling with the difficult verses in Paul's writings, which some have called the silencing passages that seem to be anti-women in leadership. So that's where I'm going to be going over the next few months. And I'm actually quite nervous and excited about it. Well, why do that, you ask? I mean, what's the point? I mean, really, isn't it a non-issue? I mean, well, well, actually, you have to realise that in our Presbyterian church, women have only been able to be ordained as elders for the past 65 years. And have only been able to be ordained as ministers for the past 55 uh, one of the Thy Kingdom Come videos, remember our season of prayer, Thy Kingdom Come, one of the, the, the videos of daily devotions that really spoke to me um, was uh, the first black woman bishop in the Anglican Church, Rose Hudson Wilkins, whose message of being open to say yes to God, yes to God, was inspirational. And the same time, the same week, even the same day that I listened to that and was inspired, a friend of mine put a meme on Facebook uh, from a conservative uh, university uh, professor in the US who said, if you go to a church that has women regularly preach or preach even once, go somewhere else, it's not a proper church. So it is, in actual fact, still a live and challenging issue for us. And I know many women who have not been allowed to exercise their leadership and teaching ministry because of interpretations of the Pauline passages that we're going to be looking at. And there's a divide theologically over the issue of women in leadership. One side of the argument calls themselves complementarianism, that men and women are equal of equal value, can have equal access to God because of Jesus Christ, but are created to complement each other, and so there are certain ministry and leadership roles that women cannot have. On the other side of the argument uh, is egalitarianism, that men and women are created equal, with equal access to God, and equally able to serve and use the God, gifts God has given them in any and every leadership role. 
Both sides can point to biblical texts and examples to back up their position. Both sides claim to want to be faithful to God's word. And I don't think it'll take long to work out which side of the divide I'm on. But I'll try and provide a balanced view of scripture and its interpretation. Some people have suggested that the Christian faith's change of stance on women and leadership is a result of the changing understanding of women and men in our society. And they see it as walking away from scripture. Yet equally, the changing role of women in society, I believe, has caused us to go back and re-examine the biblical texts and strip away some of our cultural bias and see afresh what was in the texts all along. Women in leadership in the early church. And we're going to look at the silent witnesses to that today. When N.T. Wright is asked about women in leadership, he says he starts by looking at the two passages we had read out to us today. The resurrection narrative and the passage where Paul brings greetings to his Christian brothers and sisters in the church at Rome. Because in these two passages, we see both Jesus' attitude and Paul's practice of having women as co-workers. The resurrection narrative in all four Gospels has the woman who went to Jesus' tomb being the first to know the good news that Jesus was risen from the dead and being the first to be commanded and commissioned to go and tell. Before we have the Great Commission, we have this commission. And it's often used as the, uh, part of the argument for the validity of the resurrection narrative because in first century Jewish society, women were not considered to be able to be reliable witnesses because they were seen as too emotional. If it was a made-up story, if the resurrection was a made-up story, then the women would not be the first on the scene. It gives it an acknowledgement of being uh, an eyewitness account that this was the case. In Mark's narrative, this could be why his story of the resurrection Sunday finishes the women being afraid to say what they've seen. And in Luke's gospel, we find that they're not being believed. And Peter has to go and check for himself. And on the road to Emmaus, uh, Cleophas tells the man who turns out to be Jesus that the women had some amazing news, but they were sceptical. And by the way, the fact that Cleophas' um, partner on the road is not mentioned by name, some biblical scholars believe that it's because it was his wife. The two of them were walking together. And it's hard to think of Jesus entrusting the good news of his resurrection to these women for only that one trip to the disciples to let them know that they were then to be dropped from the great commission of going and telling everyone and making disciples. As my friend New Testament scholar Mark Kewen says, there was a time when the church was only women, was only women, because they were the only ones who knew that Jesus had been raised to life again. And it says something of Jesus' attitude towards women and their role in his kingdom. At Pentecost, the Spirit of God fell on all 120 believers who were gathered in that place. Men and faithful women. They were all empowered to witness to Jesus, to all nations. 
The prophecy in Joel says that they would all prophesy, that men and women, old and young, rich and poor, free and slaves, would proclaim the word of God, would prophesy, tell forth God's word, men and women. And the passage at the end of Romans contains the list of wonderful names, and John, you did such a great name reading them out. They are names that Paul brings greetings to at the church in Rome, many of whom he acknowledges as actively involved in the leadership and working for the Lord as co-workers. And reading it in the Good News Version, we might miss the fact that in that list of names, there are ten women. Did you notice that? No, because they're strange names to us. There are ten women who are acknowledged, who are described in different ways as working for the Lord, being active in ministry and leadership. They are the women, along with some others, who we'll talk about uh, later, throughout the epistles that Gordon Fee calls the silent witnesses to the acceptance of women in leadership and ministry in the early church. In verse 1 and 2, Paul commends Phoebe to the church at Rome. If you're a friend's... um, Friends, fan, you'll know that Phoebe is a a woman's name. He calls her a servant of the church at Sincrea, which is on the Corinthian Peninsula, and a benefactor to many. And I know it sounds a bit pretentious here, but the Greek word translated serves is diakonos, which literally means to wait on tables. And some have suggested that its meaning has the same meaning as our word deacon, in our church polity today, that she was a deacon, or we might say that she was a manager. Uh, So Phoebe could have a leadership role, but it was more of a servant and limited one, definitely not a uh, teaching one. And, And you know, that's reading back into the scripture, our understanding of offices in the church. And I don't think that at that stage, there's no inkling that they would have had that understanding of those words being used in that term way back uh, when the letter to Rome was being written. And in actual fact, the word servant is the word that we use to define our clergy. Minister. Minister means servant. Okay? Phoebe could have a leadership role. Um, Having her mentioned here and being recommended also has been taken... Uh, to postulate the fact that Phoebe was the person who Paul entrusted with his letter to the Romans. You know, that's why she's being um, commended to them here. Uh, That does not mean that, ironically, she was just the mailman. Letters would have been read by the person who delivered them. And they would have been the ones who would have been asked to explain this and that. What does Paul mean by justification by faith? What does he mean by righteousness? And Paul would have discussed those things with Phoebe. And um, it's quite possible that the first ever expositor of this great letter to the Romans, this letter that sparked the Reformation, when Martin Luther expounded it, sparked the Reformation, was a woman, was Phoebe. Then we have Priscilla and her husband Aquila, who Paul calls his co-workers in Christ, a title he uses for people like Timothy and Titus. 
And we know that they had fled Rome with the expulsion of the Jews under Claudius. And when Claudius died, they could come back. And Aquila worked as a tent maker with Paul. And that they, Priscilla and Aquila, took Apollos aside in Ephesus and taught him the gospel. And from this section, we see that they suffered imprisonment for their faith. Now, five times out of the six times that Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned in the scriptures, Priscilla is mentioned first, which implies that she is seen as the more prominent of the two. However way you look at it, though, it also says that they were both involved in leadership and teaching. And we see also that they have a leadership role in the church at Rome because there is a house church which meets in their home. So they are the leaders of that church. And then in verse 6, we have Mary, who is said to work very hard for you, to be working for the gospel. And I'm sure it wasn't just in the kitchen making the sandwiches. Likewise, in verse 12, Paul greets three other women who are equally said to work hard for you in the Lord. Tryphena, Tryphosa, and Paul's dear friend, Persis. These are women's names, and they are said to be actively involved in leading the church and spreading the gospel. In verse 7, we have a couple of people who are mentioned, Andronicus and Junia, who are said to be outstanding amongst the apostles and who, in, who were in Christ before Paul. Now, there's some issues with translation here, as outstanding amongst the apostles is used in the New International Version the New Revised Standard Version, and the King James Version. That's how they translate it. But in other ones, like the Good News Bible, it says that they were well known amongst the apostles, that the apostles knew them well. And the challenge is that while Andronicus is a male name, Junia is a woman's name. So uh, for her to be acknowledged as outstanding amongst the apostles, which is the more natural translation is to say that she was considered by the church to have an apostolic ministry, to be a church planter and missionary. Now, some translations have circumnavigated that problem by translating junior as junius, like the Good News translation uh, did, but in actual fact, even now, they have changed it back to junior. Junius is a masculine name. However, of the over 200 inscriptions in the city of Rome where the name Junior occurs, there's no instance where the masculine is used. You know, it's not a masculine name that was used in Rome. There's none. Junior, a woman's name, is the more natural reading. And the problem with that translation has been most people have thought, well, you can't have a woman who is an apostle. And that seems to be a more modern occurrence as people have put together Greek, um, Greek texts. Because you see, we have from the early church fathers, early Christian writers, who when they reflect on the early church have said some amazing things. Uh, Christostom, the bishop of Constantinople in the 300s said, the women of that time were more zealous than the men, sharing with the apostles in the labor of preaching. Some things don't change. Origen also acknowledges this greeting as reason why women should be seen as ordained into leadership. But as we've gone on, it's sort of cultural things have meant that, you know, they've actually had to think through that. 
We also have Rufus's mother and Julia mentioned in this passage, probably in roles that we might be more used to seeing women. Rufus's mother, who Paul acknowledges is, uh, treats him like a son, or in some of the other pas- uh, translations says is a mother to him as well. You know, he values the contribution she makes to him and his ministry. And Julia and the sister of Nerus are also mentioned as being part of the church and known to Paul. If the other women were not seen in leadership roles, then you could expect that they may have simply warranted a mention here at the end of the list as being the people that Paul knew in the church at Rome. But he says they're co-workers with him. Outside of Romans 16, we have other silent witnesses to women in leadership roles. In the church in Corinth, Paul speaks of Chloe's people. Chloe's people who actually bring questions to Paul about what is happening in the church at Corinth. And uh, who Paul uh, considers uh, that it's important that he in actual fact answers those questions. You know, the implication is that Chloe was a prominent woman and leader. In fact, Chloe's people talks possibly of a home church that was in Chloe's house. In Philippi, the first convert is Lydia. And it says that her and her whole household, she's the head of her household, is baptized and she opens her house to be the first church in Europe. Remember, she's the head of that household. Then in Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, he writes concerning two women who are in conflict with each other, Eudia and Sun Taichi, who Paul speaks of struggling with him for the gospel and calls them co-workers along with male leaders such as Clement. Again, that word co-worker is applied to the likes of Timothy and Titus. So it's a strong affirmation of Paul's acceptance of women in ministry and leadership. And the way he calls for them to be mediation between the two of them also reflects the respect he has for them as co-workers. Because of their position in the church, their conflict has the potential to cause great harm because they're in leadership positions. These are the silent witnesses to women in leadership in the early church in the New Testament. And you know, we don't know their stories or anything much about them. They do not speak. But by looking at the people that Paul greets and the way he addresses them, we can see that Paul was open to a church where both men and women were actively involved in leadership and working together for the spread of the gospel and the church. That is important when we come to look at the so-called silencing passages because it provides us a picture of what the early church was like, what its day-to-day practice was like, what, how Paul in actual fact treated and thought of women in leadership and ministry. So when we come to those, look at those passages, it's important to see how Paul, you know, actually lived from day to day as much as we can. Now I was talking to Elaine Holwell on Tuesday morning before she went out as our central city chaplain and she's doing some amazing work connecting us as a church with the community. It's a, it's a great missionary position. And I was in preacher mode, so I was going through all the stuff that I'd just gone through uh, with you. And Elaine, Elaine said to me, you know, that's information, Howard. That's information. It's good information, but it's just information. What is the revelation? What is God saying to us? 
And I was challenged by that. So here is what I think is the revelation for us. And it's short and it's simple. Paul respected and valued the ministry and leadership of women and men in a whole lot of different ministry and leadership roles. And Romans 16 points, uh, paints for us a picture of the church at the heart of the empire that was vibrant and multifaceted, using the gifts of both men and women to further the spread of the gospel and the church. And that picture, I believe, is a vision for us today as the church as well. To be co-workers, valuing each other's gifts, leadership, and ministry equally, male and female, young and old, to fill, fulfill our church's vision of being a flourishing Christian community that connects people to God and one another. We need everybody to use those gifts to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you very much for these silent witnesses and uh, what they say to us, even without speaking. We pray that you would uh, bless us with uh, Phoebe's and Priscilla's and Tryphena's and Mary's, even uh, with Chloe's, people that would ask questions and uh, the other women who uh, are mentioned in this passage, uh, that as a church, we might have this fullness of uh, ministry and gifting amongst us. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Great job.